3: Down. Here
4: to well, welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth.
5: Hello, everybody. Okay,
4: now, for those of you who don't know this show, the show's in a, a couple of different parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, we want to try to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, we do seminars usually each month, and at the end of June, we're going to be doing one seminar in Manhattan or two sets of seminars in Manhattan at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, on Monday, June 25th. And on Tuesday, June 26th, we're going to hit Staten Island at Bocelli's Restaurante, in Staten Island at 1250 Highland Boulevard. Those seminars are going to be at 11 o'clock, 3 and 7 p.m. And again, if you want to talk about estate planning, elder law, show up. We'll try to answer your questions. I mean, most of our questions have to do: What do we do with the house? Now, we also, if you if you want to ask us email questions, please feel free. And you know, you can email us at askmyconnors at gmail.com. And Beth, how many uh, how many email questions do we have right now that we can read?
6: Well, we're backed up. I yeah. have three
5: ready to go.
4: Okay, let's go.
5: Okay. Hello. I have a two-year-old daughter, and I'm engaged to be married to her father. I don't have a will, but if anything were to happen to me, how can my mom become her guardian? I also would like to know, what does a guardianship proceeding entail? Many thanks, Rebecca.
4: Okay. So... Basically, you can appoint a guardian in two ways with New York. And we're not talking about—we're talking about a guardian for a minor child right now, not for an incompetent person. So when we're talking about a, a guardian for a minor child, you can do it through a will. And basically, in the will, you would say, I appoint, you know, my mother to be guardian of my, any minor children that I leave at the time of my demise. And, you know, that basically would appoint a guardian. You can also do it by deed. It's, it's usually not used very often, but you could, like, it's hard to explain because not a deed transferring property, but it's a deed where you appoint somebody to be a guardian in case something happens to you. Why would you do it that way? I think one of the, way, one of the reasons you might do it that way, if you were afraid that it would take a long time to get through probate, that may somebody may stall things up, you have a missing family member or something like that, you may want to do it through deed. And then you file that with the county clerk, and you say you appoint somebody, put their name and address down to be guardian of, and I would name the child specifically at that point. So that's how you appoint a guardian. But everybody should have a will no matter what because here's the thing. Whatever assets in your name alone, uh, you want to take care of your daughter, and you want to make sure that not only is there a guardian appointed, but there's somebody, if you have any financial assets at all, they can manage it for your daughter until your daughter is either twenty one twenty five whatever age you think is uh is right now uh, one of the one of the things some people say, well you know I don't have any assets, so I don't have to worry about a trustee for my children because I don't own anything. The thing is if you're relatively young and you have minor children, God forbid something happens to you. there could be um a lawsuit. You know, you people in September 11th, a lot of people there had no assets, no, you know, no real money. And then all of a sudden they had a million dollar settlement coming to them as a result of the, the settlement claims at 9-11. So, you know, everybody should have a will. You got to be prepared. You know, every week, uh, Kevin McCullough takes, a, takes one of these phone calls and we play it on his show. So let's repeat that from uh, this week's.
3: Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we ask you to send send us your questions for Mike Connors of Connors and & Sullivan, and we promise you he'll answer one of them on the air. He answers a bunch more on his shows, by the way, every Saturday at 8 on AM 570 The Mission and Saturday night at 6 on AM 970 The Answer. But, Mike, this week's question comes from Daisy. We bought our house in 1970 for $110,000. is now worth $1.2 I'm afraid of losing my house if my husband goes into a nursing home. Should we just transfer the house to my two daughters? my Connors, what say you?
4: No, because the two daughters, especially if they don't live in the house, but if you just transfer the house, make a gift of the house to your two daughters, you paid $110,000 for it. Let's say they sell it at some point for $1.2 Obviously, we have more than a million-dollar capital gain, and they're going to have to pay $350,000 in taxes, in real money. What we'd like to do is put the house in trust. We start protecting the house from your husband's medical bills. And the daughters, if you hold the house till after you're gone, the daughters can sell your house tax-free at $1.2 million. Because right now in New York State, there's no death tax under $5.2 million And capital gains are wiped out on assets held in the trust after you're gone, if you hold the asset till after you're gone.
3: Uh, that sounds like a very definitive answer. Thank you, Mike Connors. And friends, maybe you've got a question about a similar situation. 718-238-6500 is the access code to the authority on estate care and elder law. Uh, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Or you can also email Mike at mikeconnors at gmail.com.
6: Okay,
4: thanks again, Kevin. And again, we're on Kevin's show each Thursday at Usually around five fifteen, the five o'clock hour. And you you know, if you haven't heard Kevin McCullough before, give it a tune in. You know, he's he's got a show that's local, that you know you get breaking news on. Well, Beth, I think we still have some more questions. We do
5: indeed. This one is from George. Hi, my wife and I are retired, and our total assets far exceed what we need to live comfortably. Currently, I have four grandchildren two of which are already attending college, one who is about to graduate high school and enroll in a college, and the last is getting her master's degree in business. My wife and I wanted to contribute towards their education and pay for their tuition, tuition for each grandchild would exceed $25,000 per year. My question is, would we need to pay a gift tax at the end of the year if we decided to pay the tuition for all four grandchildren. Once again, that's from George.
4: Okay, before we answer George's question, will you please ask Otto to keep quiet?
5: (laughs) I'm, I'm taking care of Bay Ridge, everybody, and Otto thinks there is someone trespassing. So that is that's my warning signal, but don't worry. He'll protect me, Mike. That's okay.
4: Yeah, we'll ask him to, you know, keep a little bit quieter while we're <laughs> on the air. Okay, so, here, and that's a very good question because it's a point that a lot of people are really not aware of. Yes, you can pay the tuition of the grandchildren or whatever, and it's a very good idea, if, obviously, if you can afford it. But here's one thing. You should make the check directly to the school. Like, in other words, if you take $25,000 and you give $25,000 to your grandchild or maybe to your son or daughter to pay their tuition, that is a gift. And it's a gift for two purposes. It's a gift for IRS purposes, which in a lot of cases right now is not a major problem because there's no gift tax federally now under $11 million. But it is a gift for Medicaid purposes so that if somebody goes to a nursing home You're going to be charged with a gift. And, for instance, if you made a $25,000 gift, that means you may have to pay two, three months in a nursing home that you may not otherwise have to pay if it was done correctly. What is the correct way to do it? You make the check directly to the school. You don't give it to the grandchildren. You don't give it to your son or daughter. You make the check directly to the school. That is not a gift. In effect, what you're doing, What the law says you're doing, you're paying for education. You're not making a gift. Now, I know it's a fine line, and and some people say, well, that's garbage, and you know what? I don't make the rules, but believe me, it makes a big difference. God forbid somebody's going to a nursing home. It makes a big difference if somebody pays the tuition directly to the school. Again, that is not a gift. You're buying education. We don't have to file a gift tax return, and it's much better, and not only that, you know, like if there, you get the cancel check, things like that. Maybe in some cases you might be able to say you support the child or whatever depending on the circumstances. So, But in any event, you make the check straight to the school. You do not make the gift to the grandchild because then you've made a gift to the grandchild. The grandchild may or may not use it for education, but that's not the question. The question is have you paid for education or if you made a gift and we want it to be classified... That you paid for education, and you know that's sometimes like estate planning. You may want to come in and schedule an appointment with us because what seems obvious sometimes is most people would say, "What difference does it make if I pay twenty-five thousand dollars to give it to my grandchild and he pays his tuition, or whether I pay pay the tuition directly?" And sometimes that can real mean mean real money. And if you're borderline New York State. Estate taxes and gift taxes, you know, a $25,000 gift might add a $30,000 tax bill to your estate if you're at the bubble. So we're not necessarily talking about petty cash. If you're in one of these situations, you may want to get the right advice. You're always welcome to give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. All right. I don't know if we have another time for another question to, before the break. So, Beth, maybe you, you hold that question and, until the end.
5: Absolutely.
4: Now, we're going to be talking Civil War. We're going to be talking to Pat Schroeder about, not the former congresswoman, Pat Schroeder about Appomattox. And, you know, as we talk about it, you know, a lot of part of our show, we talk about history, politics, and religion. And we're going to talk, we're going to combine a little bit of politics and religion with Anthony DeStefano. So stay tuned to Ask the Lawyer. We'll be right back. Coming up next, we're going to have our interview with Pat Schroeder, Civil War historian on the Appomattox campaign.
0: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Adult stem cell research is nothing new. It has been going on for decades and, in fact, has proven helpful in treating various diseases. In the process of this research, nobody has to be killed in order to obtain the stem cells. Embryonic stem cell research, on the other hand, only began in 1998 and does involve killing a new human life in order to obtain the cells. The number of diseases that have been successfully treated with embryonic stem cells is zero. They have shown no medical benefit. And even if they did, such activity is immoral. The end does not justify the means. Adult stem cells have treated various forms of leukemia, sickle cell disease, anemia, and carcinoma embryonic stem cells have succeeded in nothing this is father frank lavone national director of
3: priests for life
2: for our ask the lawyer friends and listeners you can attend any of connor's and sullivan's free seminars on elder law medicaid wills and estate planning and more
6: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's Free Seminars.
2: On Monday, June 25th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Tuesday, June 26th at Pocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m.
6: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's Free Seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
2: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com.
6: Find out what you're entitled to two. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors &
2: Sullivan, plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
4: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. At most of you know i'm president of the civil war roundtable of new york and we meet on a monday our next meeting is going to be monday june 11th at the three west club three west 51st street and our speaker that night is going to be our next guest patrick schroeder and he's going to be talking about the appomattox campaign lee's retreat Grant's pursuit how you doing today pat
7: doing fine thanks for having me on your show
4: Appomattox. Most of the people out in the audience, our audience at least, would know what Appomattox was, but the Appomattox campaign. But what was it to those who don't know quite as much?
7: Well, the uh, Appomattox campaign is the really the final major campaign of the Civil War uh, with the most disastrous results for the Confederate Army uh, in which Lee's army loses half of its army. Uh, in the course of a week. He goes from about 60,000 men down to 30,000 men, and he is pursued by Grant with a little over 80,000 men, and uh, it results in his surrender at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9, 1865, and other Confederate armies follow suit once Lee surrenders.
4: He went from 60,000 men to 30,000 men in a week. How did that happen?
7: Well, in rough numbers, um, about 10,000 men are killed and wounded. 10,000 men are captured, uh, about 8,000 of them at the Battles of Salish Creek on April 6, 1865. And then there's about 10,000 men that just see the writing on the wall and desert the army and go home. And of course, uh, this is uh, with Lee's army marching from Petersburg. He, he has been in the siege of Petersburg, besieged down there by Grant's forces, Uh, Grant's trying to get the railroads, and they finally cut him off the the last one, the Southside Railroad, after the Battle of Five Forks on April 1st. And Lee has his army of about 60,000 men, and he wants to go down to North Carolina and link forces with Joe Johnston. If he can get down there, uh, his 60,000 would combine with Johnston's 30,000. They'd have numbers possibly to uh, do battle with Sherman and then maybe turn back against Grant. Pretty long odds. Uh, so he wants to go to North Carolina and he's going to uh, concentrate his army at a place called Amelia Courthouse. There, there's going to be rations and then he's going to head south down the Richmond Danville Railroad. Um, but in, when he gets there, there's not food for his army and he has to go uh, further west and uh, is heading for Farmville, gets bogged down in an area called Sailors Creek. Uh, and he's going to get to Farmville, get some rations, uh, but federal troops are pursuing so close that, uh, they're not able to distribute many of the rations that get forced north of the Appomattox river. And, uh, the next place he can cross the Appomattox river is at a place called Appomattox courthouse, where I'm speaking to you from. And that's his objective to get to, uh, well, beyond Appomattox Courthouse to Appomattox Station, where supplies from Lynchburg have been brought over. And then he's going to go south uh, down what today basically is Route 29 to Danville and hopefully link up with Joe Johnston uh, down there. And that's kind of a long way to say how did Lee lose so many men. Well, over that course of a week, uh, he is fighting battles every day. His troops are in poor condition. Uh, The roads are not good. He's night marching. And uh you know, on a map if you go from Petersburg to Appomattox you're looking a little over hundred miles, but uh if you ever look at a campaign map you'll see these troops didn't march in straight lines. Most of these men were marching probably hundred and fifty to two hundred miles that week, uh, which is just an incredible feat of marching and, and uh many of the soldiers doing it on short supplies. So um so the casualties from men being killed in those battles Wounded, captured, and then, like I said, those just seeing the writing on the wall and going home.
4: Of course, you're talking about Lee's retreat. The other part is Grant's pursuit.
7: Sure, yeah. Grant does things a little bit differently because uh, at one point, him and Meade are in conversation, and Meade says something like, "I'll follow Lee wherever he goes," and Grant basically says, "No, we're not going to follow Lee. Uh, we're going to go where he wants to go." So instead of following behind Lee. Uh, as Meade had proposed, Grant moves to points where Lee wants to go, and he gets troops to a place called Jetersville, and when Lee's army comes out of Amelia Courthouse on April 5th, thinking they're going to North Carolina, uh, he runs into federal troops entrenched at Jetersville, uh, the federal 5th Corps and the cavalry, and later the 2nd Corps, and this is your big what if of the campaign, uh, what, what if Lee fights a battle the Battle of Jetersville. Well, he doesn't do it because the Federals are entrenched. Uh, He never tells us why, but I I suspect that he didn't want to suffer thousands of casualties fighting his way through those entrenchments. Uh, So that's when he opts to head for for, uh, Farmville.
4: Now, I've heard some historians have the belief that the fight really wasn't in Robert E. Lee at this point of the war.
7: Well, it's hard to say because... uh, of course, Lee only lives five years after the surrender at Appomattox and he never writes anything of what he was thinking or how he was feeling. But I would disagree with those people that say the fight wasn't in Lee because he keeps on going. He didn't have to come all the way to Appomattox Courthouse to surrender. He was trying to get away and keep this war going on as Jefferson Davis had directed to him. So uh, I would say the, uh, the fight wasn't really going; hadn't gone out of him. Even on April ninth, he fights the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse, so uh, he didn't have to do that. So I would I would disagree agree with that. Uh, for uh, now, unfortunately, for Lee Grant, just uh, I think Grant just outgeneraled him on the campaign, and uh, he got Lee into uh, what you would call a pincer's movement. Grant moved troops south of Lee, and after Farmville, he put troops pursuing Lee. Uh, to the north and west. And so by the time they got to Appomattox Courthouse, there were federal troops behind Lee under George Meade, the federal second and sixth corps, and troops under uh, General Sheridan and General Ord uh, with the Army of the James and also General um, Griffin of the fifth corps coming in from the the south. So uh, they they trapped Lee at Appomattox Courthouse. So
4: what went through the minds of the Confederate Generals a staff meeting just before the surrender? What were they talking about
7: well the the question was this is you 're speaking of the uh, Council of War the evening of April eighth, and they 're really trying to get a handle on the situation because none of them expected federal troops to march so far and so fast uh, they didn 't even know that the federal infantry had covered over thirty miles on April eighth at that time, which is marching for about 20 hours straight. So it is it is a miraculous feat of marching. But see, General Custer had got his division into Appomattox Station about four o'clock in the afternoon on April 8th and captured those Confederate supplies that were in those trains. Uh, and then he fought the Battle of Appomattox Station where he captured over 25 Confederate artillery pieces, more than a thousand prisoners, and actually Colonel Augusta Rude of the 15th New York Cavalry from Syracuse, New York, made a charge into the village of Appomattox Courthouse and ran into Lee's main army. Uh, they did get repulsed, but now there was federal troops directly in front of them. Uh, so Lee holds a council of war that evening, maybe nine, ten o'clock at night, and he calls his generals uh, that he has available to him. Uh, the main ones being uh, Pete Longstreet, who commands the 1st uh, Corps, and General John Gordon, who commands the 2nd Corps, and Fitzhugh Lee, his nephew who commands the cavalry. Now, um, General uh, William Nelson Pendleton was uh, nearly captured at the Battle of Appomattox Station, so he didn't make it to this Council of War. But Lee puts that question to his generals, you know, uh, should he go ahead and surrender? Now, we haven't talked about this, but Lee and Grant, well, Grant opened correspondence with General Lee on April 7th after the battles of Salish Creek, where Lee had lost 8,700 men killed, wounded, and mainly captured, along with eight generals. So they've been corresponding since April 7th, so Grant asking up to give up, and Lee asking for terms, and so forth. Um, but on that night of, the, of April 8th, in that Council of War, he asked Gordon, Longstreet, Fitzhugh Lee, should they surrender, and give it up, or should they try to fight their way out? And They believe uh, that it is only federal cavalry that could have got that far to their front and that they could fight their way through their cavalry, the the federal cavalry, and head south to link up with Joe Johnston. So uh, that's what the Council of War is about, and that is why Lee opts to fight the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse on the morning of April 9th. Initially, they're successful in that assault, uh, but that federal infantry I was telling you about did march those over 30 miles on April 8th, some more on the morning of April 9th, and they came up and closed down the road to the west to, towards uh, Lynchburg, even though they're not heading to Lynchburg. They're going to go south to Danville. But uh, they, the Federal Infantry closed that road down, and uh, John Gordon sees Federal Infantry under the 5th Corps and. Uh, General Griffin and, and Custer's cavalry moving along the ridge to the southwest. There's about 20,000 federal troops on his left flank on some high ground, and he sends a note to Lee saying, I have fought my corps to a frazzle. So, how bad are things when you've fought your corps to a frazzle? And when Lee receives that message from Gordon, uh, because Gordon asked for the support of Longstreet, but Longstreet's about four miles away facing General Meade and the Army of the Potomac. Uh, in an area called New Hope Church, and uh, Lee says that's when he he decides he must go see in General see General Grant, and he would rather die a thousand deaths.
4: Okay, he says he would rather die a thousand deaths. What does he think's going to happen?
7: Well, Grant had laid out some terms initially in that correspondence, but. Uh, the situation was a little differently. Now Lee is effectively surrounded. He has federal troops to the south and to the west, and federal troops uh, behind him to the north and the east. So he is effectively surrounded. So now really he is at uh, Grant's will. Uh, But Grant had uh, gave some hints that they would get fair terms. Uh, Lincoln had met with Grant prior to the campaign, and Lincoln impressed upon Grant to let them up easy because he wanted the Southern soldiers to become good United States citizens again. And so Lee, uh, you know, he might have an idea that things might not be so bad, but he does not want to have, I mean, the, the ignominy of surrendering this uh, the best army uh, in the Confederacy. Uh, and he is going to take that upon himself. Uh, his father had served under George Washington, uh, commanded the cavalry. Uh, and at Yorktown, he spoke of the the poor behavior of, of Cornwallis uh, sending someone else to surrender. So Lee will take this upon, this burden upon himself. Um, so it is not something he wants to do, but he is going to to man up and and do it. So uh, he arranges to meet with General Grant. They meet at the McLean House at three. At 1.30 the afternoon of April 9th, 1865, and an hour and a half later, the the, uh, terms have been given and uh, Lee surrenders. And they were generous terms. Grant was not going to send these Confederate soldiers to prison camp. Uh, He was going to parole them and allow them to go home. He's going to let their officers keep their sidearms, personal baggage, any man that owned a horse or a mule, Grant's going to allow them to to keep them and he also agrees to send rations to feed the confederate army so they are very Lee says this will have a very happy effect upon my army uh they call the surrender here uh a gentleman's agreement
8: some people
4: talk about the speculation that that some people wanted to break out and fight a guerrilla war as far as lee was concerned
7: yeah there is that uh that that mainly comes from e.p. alexander uh who commanded the 1st Corps artillery under James Longstreet. Some people are familiar with E.P. Alexander from the movie Gettysburg, uh, and that is something that uh, E.P. Alexander advances, that you know maybe they should scatter the Army and fight a guerrilla-style war, but Lee rejects it uh, just out of hand. He, he, he rejects it. He says this will draw uh, federal troops into areas of the country that they would have no need to go. It will wreak... Uh, devastation on the people uh, of uh, Virginia and wherever else, uh, and uh, he he just rejected it out of hand. It wasn't a, the gentlemanly thing to do to fight a guerrilla war, um, so so Lee is not in favor of that. Uh, in historical perspective, there's a couple things I question. First of all, uh, E.P. Alexander is an artilleryman. He is not typically he's dueling with the enemy at perhaps a mile away it wasn't an infantry commander that suggested that uh, who might have a better gauge of their their troops who would have to uh to do that 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 bushwhacking and so forth but i think most of the confederate army was uh, what they would have called played out i mean these men didn't have uh supplies they they were uh, shorter rations their, their their shoes were breaking down their clothing was breaking down Uh, I think most Confederate soldiers weren't happy about being surrendered, but when they learned of their generous terms, uh, they might have thought things weren't going to be so bad after all. Um, Also trying to get troops out of Appomattox from being nearly encircled, uh, I think would have been very difficult. Lee brought that up that he didn't think but maybe a third of the men could even get away. Uh, I question if it could be that, that high. And then the other question that comes in, uh, in that nature is how many men wanted to do something like that. And reading the accounts of most Confederate soldiers, I don't think most of them, uh, would have had interest in carrying on the war, uh, after what they had already gone through.
4: Okay. So if you want to see Pat Schroeder in person, talking about the Appomattox campaign, Lee's tr- Retreat, Grants Pursuit, give us a call at 718-341-9811, 718-341-9811. Again, June 11th, 530 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. Patrick, thank you for bringing history to life.
7: Thank you for having me, Mike, and I look forward to seeing you in June.
2: Very good. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me.
5: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going.
1: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with.
2: You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
8: We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home.
5: Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it.
3: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
2: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from
4: the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org
8: today. now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash F. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement.
2: Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
4: The lawyer. With me right now, I have Anthony DiStefano. He's got a book out, Inside the Atheist Mind. How are you doing today, Anthony?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. title says a lot, but what's the book about? Well, the subtitle actually says even more. Uh, the book is Inside the Atheist Mind, Unmasking the Religion of Those Who Say There Is No God. Uh, my book is all about how atheism is not just simply the absence of belief, but it's really a whole system of beliefs. Uh, it's, a, it's a system of beliefs that has uh, a philosophy, materialism. It's got its own culture, secularism, its own politics, social Darwinism, its own morality, relativism. It's even got its own sacraments, abortion and euthanasia. And uh, And this system of beliefs has been responsible for more death, misery, and uh, unhappiness and carnage than any other system of beliefs the world has ever known. Uh, so it's a fairly hard-hitting book, and it's a response to, to uh, these new atheists that have been uh, very in vogue the last 20 years, uh, who have been attacking uh, very aggressively, uh, most, uh, mostly the Christian religion.
4: Yeah, you would think that if you were an atheist, you wouldn't care if somebody believed in Christ. What difference would
1: it make? You would think that unless it was indeed a, a religion of its own. And then if it, if, if it, it was a, a religion of its own and they're trying to spread that religion of nothingness, then they would care very much about that. Um, and that's exactly the situation that we have. And they're being very effective, too, because right now there is literally an epidemic of atheism in this country, not just people who are professed atheists and not just the religiously unaffiliated who make up, by the way, 25 percent of the population. But but functional atheists. Now this is very important because functional atheists are people who say that they're Christians, they say that they're Jews, they even say that they're Muslims, but in reality they're not. They don't hold to the tenets of those religions. They're really they're they're really secular humanist. Uh, they don't let their professed belief in God or their religion impact their behavior, especially their political behavior. They're, for all intents and purposes, they're functionally atheistic. And the problem that we're running into in this country right now is these functional atheists really control the, uh, many of the levers of power, especially in the communications industry. Uh, 85% of the media, uh, the, the academic world, uh, Hollywood, the music industry, uh, they dominate. Uh, functional atheists dominate those industries. And, it's, and, and as you know, it's, uh, it's, it really what I'm talking about is the left. I think you make a point in your book, that World War II
4: and some of the, the wars that started, a lot to do with atheists in those wars. Yes, say, the, and, and well,
1: atheists like to claim. Atheists like to claim <laughs> that, that a religion is responsible for so much bloodshed. But this is one of the biggest lies of all time. Uh, Philip Axelrod's uh, uh, monumental encyclopedia of of wars catalogs all the wars going back to 8,000 B.C., and and, and it shows that only 6.98% of all the wars that have ever taken place had to do with religion, or religion was their source. And if you eliminate Islam from the equation, that figure drops down to 3.2% of all the wars are Christian in nature. That means over 96% of all the wars that have taken place have not had anything to do with religion, but have done have to do with worldly reasons, like economic gain, territorial gain, etc. And what you really find that's interesting is that atheists are responsible for most of the bloodshed in the world. If you look back at the last 100 years alone, if you look back at the, atheist, the totalitarian atheist regimes of the 20th century, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Stalin, uh, Lenin, Pol Pot, these atheists were responsible for 150 million murders, 150 million murders. Atheists are still complaining today about the Crusades and, and the Inquisition. And meanwhile, they're responsible for 150 million murders just in the last 100 years.
4: By the way, just curious on your statistics, what were the three percent of the wars that were involved
1: Christianity? Well, I don't know. I don't have the okay. list in front of me, but there, <laughs> but three point two percent Christian wars. Okay. So, but, but can you imagine? I mean, what you would? You what would is say, that? I mean, imagine, imagine uh, that for them to say that uh, that, that uh, religion is the cause of the wars when obviously economic gain is the number one reason for war, and territorial gain is the second reason, and then something you know about civil war and revolutionary war are all are the third and fourth biggest reasons for war, obviously those wars i mean the civil war the, the, think of the Civil War or World War two. They didn't have anything to do with religion. So how could, they, how could these atheists complain all the time hysterically that religion is the cause of so much bloodshed? And what's, what's even worse is that even though we don't have gulags and gas chambers today, as you know very well, uh, the, the, this, as we've seen this rise in functional atheism, we've also seen a corresponding rise in this horrifying culture of death that we find ourselves engulfed in right now. I mean, was it something like a billion abortions since 1960? 35 million abortions a year annually? 92% of all babies with Down syndrome aborted? Uh, People being euthanized uh, for any and no reason? I mean, it's it's scary. Why do you
4: think that's so... I mean, I really don't understand the logic behind it. Okay, you're an atheist, but then why is it okay to have an abortion? Why is it okay to kill somebody? Easy
1: connection. There's a profound connection between atheism and death. Well, the Bible, first of all, says, you know... I think the book of Proverbs and other places says, all who hate me, God, love death. The co- connection is this. If you don't believe in God, then you don't have any transcendent moral imperative for being against killing. There's no, there's no commandment against killing. You could be against killing, and indeed there are a million reasons to be against killing, but there's no transcendent moral imperative To be against killing—that's the first thing. The second thing is even more important. If you don't believe in God, then you don't believe that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Basically, you believe that human beings are just animals with bigger brains. Well, if we're just animals with bigger brains, then we don't have infinite dignity, as Christians believe. Now, you put those two beliefs together: no transcendent commandment against killing, and human beings are not don't have infinite dignity, and that is a deadly recipe. For for killing any anyone who gets in your way, it's a recipe for social Darwinism and Nietzscheism and all those terrible isms that have that resulted in uh, all those murders in the in the 20th uh, century.
4: This is what I, I I don't understand. At the same time, a lot of these people are foes of capital punishment, which I am so, somewhat opposed to capital punishment because I don't trust a jury to get it right every time. We make mistakes, but. But at the same time, these people are so committed to save the convicted murderers, as opposed to letting unborn children.
1: It's a, it's a, you know, it's. I wouldn't want to get into trying to analyze because, because the, as you know, many people on the right, uh, many uh, Catholics are very against capital punishment as well. So it's, I'm not. There's not a clear line where you could say, well, everyone on the left is for this, and everyone on the left is uh, on the right is for this. As you know, it's, it gets messy. Where it comes uh, to, to many when it comes to many issues, but on certain issues, it's very very clear. But but why does the left? Why do
4: atheists? Why are they so concerned about convicted murderers? What's and that, their that's logic? A
1: that's a political. That's a political question. I'm not an I'm not a expert on uh, politics. I didn't write a book on the left and all their evils. I'm making the connection between functional atheists and uh, and the left because I think that there's a clear connection between them. And I think we see it a lot when it comes to free speech, too, uh, this issue of, you know, again, because atheists don't believe uh, in God, uh, the, the, they, they don't believe that uh, our rights come from the creator because they don't believe in a creator. And because of that, they don't believe that, that certain rights are inalienable. And that's why if they believe these rights don't come from God, they come from the government, therefore the government can restrict and repress various rights. And we see that a lot when it comes to free speech.
4: Why should somebody buy this book? What do you, what do you want them to take away from reading this book? I, I
1: think that a lot of uh, believers out there uh, feel under siege. They feel that, uh, you know, they, 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 they see all the books and blogs and articles and these uh, horribly offensive billboard campaigns that are launched uh, at Christmas time and Easter time by these atheists, really offensive, vulgar, uh, and, and, and they don't know how to respond. Uh, to them, they, because, because these atheists are so aggressive in you, and in your face. I think my book will give them, give believers the ammunition they need to quickly destroy a lot of the arguments that atheists use, if you can even call them arguments, and also inspire them, uh, because it, the book really shows how intellectually bankrupt the atheists uh, are. Um, and the second uh, group I think that might profit from the book are genuine, sincere uh, agnostics, sincere atheists who want to believe something but who have been you know, they've bought into a lot of the anti-God rhetoric that, uh, that, they, that they hear today. So I think the book will help the, both those uh, groups.
4: Thank you for what you're doing inside the atheist mind. Anthony DeStefano, thank you for being on Connors Corner. Thank you for having me, Mike.
9: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. How can I protect my family if something happens to me?
6: What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of grandpa? Grandpa.
2: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622.
4: Okay, again, welcome back. Beth, I, still th- I think we have a, another couple of questions on the email. Maybe we can get one of them in.
5: Okay, here we go. This is from uh, for Ura. I'm going to be retiring at the end of this year. I'm married and my wife and I are currently in good health. We plan to travel extensively in our retirement. We have a revocable living trust in place which has our primary residence in it. I also have a fairly large company sponsored 401k account with my wife as the designated beneficiary and my two children as contingent beneficiaries are there any advantages to putting the 401k into the trust as opposed to just leaving it the way i have it now
4: well one it, it's there's no advantage but two you really can't do it um uh, you, you know 401k and ira plan in effect they are revocable trust that the assets in there are yours for your lifetime and after they're gone they're going to pass to the beneficiaries Now, it's very important, but you did mention it. You did have your children as contingent beneficiaries. So they will be able to collect those assets maybe, depending on the the 401k plan or if it was switched over to an IRA. They can stretch it out to their life expectancies. And that's usually the best way to do it. And even if you had an irrevocable trust, um, you you really can't put the assets in an irrevocable trust because that would be a taxable event. Um, When I'm talking about the assets, I'm talking about retirement assets. Not if you put your house in there, not if you put your regular stock savings plans or whatever. But if you put, let's say, your your IRA, you take it out and you put it into a trust, that would be a taxable event and you got to pay income taxes. Normally, we don't want to pay income taxes. We want to avoid it as far as possible. So, uh, you know, an IRA money, 401k money, retirement money, the principal balance is protected from medical bills. Um, Yeah, the distributions may be subject to medical attachment, but the principal balances, and and for most people to get into your nineties, the minimum distribution is usually less than your income. Not always. Sometimes you have a bad year, and it doesn't quite work out that way. But but the most part, the minimum distribution is less than your income, and and so your IRA still goes up. Even God forbid you in a nursing home, and part of your income goes to the nursing home. So, you know, it's it's one of those things. You can put almost anything in a trust, but you can't put a retirement plan in a trust. All right, did you get um maybe I forgot but there was a uh, a question from Joshua, did we get that one?
5: Um I you know what? I just closed my questions out. I have a I have a we were fortunate last night. I think we should share it with the with our our listeners to have dinner with um Father Paul again. And Anthony what he was talking about Father Paul We were talking about education. So, talk about our last
4: guest, Anthony Stefano.
5: Right. And how Father Paul just said, we don't, um, when you go to school, you're not taught the real facts. You're not taught, I mean, everybody can have a different opinion about what happened in history, um, why things happened or whatever, but people aren't taught facts. Um, you know,
1: they,
5: I don't even know, uh, there are, you know, we know them, Mike, and we were talking about it. but there are people in college that don't even know who Mao is. There are certainly people who don't know the atrocities of Stalin. We've had on, on the show, um, what happened in Ukraine? And one of the things we were talking about, our friend, the, the, our reporter friend was there too. John Alexander. The, Right. The stories aren't told. Everyone knew when Stalin was killing, starving millions of Ukrainians. But the people, reporters went over there and just lied, came back and said, no, it's not happening. Um, Everybody knew when the Armenians were being slaughtered. Once again, millions of people. And people ignored it. And, you know, Cambodia. Oh my goodness! You just want and the and these are these are awful people. And now and I I do want to bring this up because this is just awful. I do feel like that the world is ignoring that the Christians are being killed. You know, in in the Middle East, and um, you know we said we told Father Paul we would bring it up when when it's appropriate. I just feel this is appropriate because facts, real facts, about um, civilizations being destroyed aren't getting out to people. It's certainly not taught in universities. Um, I don't think... Father Paul said, what, there's six million Christians in the Middle East?
4: Yeah, that was a number of users, and it's not a, you know, it's its a minority, but it's not an insignificant minority. And he also mentioned the fact that in, in Lebanon, the Christian population of Lebanon decreased from somewhere close to 70 percent to 18 percent because year by year they just get killed or driven out.
5: So it's, uh, then we are not the everyday news you see on TV, and I kind of get tired of this, calling things fake news, but certainly we are told what the people who write the news want us to hear. Um, and even when I was a kid, when you really you just had the three stations, ABC, CBS, NBC, at some point, and. The, The news is the same on all the channels. And at some point, I I remember turning to my granddaddy saying, is this all the news there is in the world? And, you know, when a kid realizes everybody's telling you the same thing, there's something wrong.
4: Well, you know, again, speaking about Father Paul, we are in preparation to do a fundraiser for him his mission in the Middle East, where he he has a medical mission in the Middle East, which his primary focus is to treat Christians because they're not they're underrepresented in the in the charitable donations from around the world. So we're going to. But have
5: as a, a doctor, he will treat anyone.
4: Oh yeah, as a doctor, he'll treat anyone. But his focus on his medical mission is for uh, Christians. But we're going to have a fundraiser around November fourteenth. We're working on date, place, and time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week at the same times.
5: Bye-bye, everybody. David
4: Kikade. We are gathered here on
5: hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed
2: ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away.